Well, if you will, keep your Bibles open there too, the book of Luke. We do not follow a lectionary, um, so I don't have to preach on the birth of Jesus today. But that's what's on people's minds, and so that's what we do. Uh, we will take up, go back to 1 John next week. But last week we saw Elizabeth's son, and he had been promised as the forerunner of the Messiah. And this week we see Mary's son. We see it here in Luke chapter 2. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but as Ryan was reading it, two options are presented to us. You know, sometimes we hear a story so many times, we miss it, and we don't get it any longer. This is an excellent example of that. We've heard this account, the story of the birth of Jesus so many times, we forget the details of it. We forget what's actually taking place. He presents us with a, a contrast. There's two different visions of power here, two different models of life, two regimes, if you will. And one of these two regimes, all of us will live under. Luke draws this contrast between two kings in our passage. Notice the contrast. Verse 1, there's the kingship of Caesar Augustus. Then notice verse 7, the kingship of Jesus, the Christ, God's king, the Messiah. Caesar Augustus, when he speaks his royal decree, the whole world conforms. Everyone obeys. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This Caesar Augustus is Emperor Octavian. He's called Caesar Augustus by the uh, Roman Senate. He's responsible for ushering in a period of great peace in the Roman world. After a time of civil war and, and, and um, uh, just harsh strife, he brings in a marvelous time of peace. The poet Virgil in 40 BC talked about a day coming when peace, a day of peace was coming when nature would be renewed and sin and guilt removed. And during the reign of Augustus, there were whispers all through the Roman Empire, this might be it. This golden age may have arrived now with Caesar Augustus. Some Greek cities like of Asia Minor, they began celebrating their new year on Caesar's birthday, September 23rd. In the city of uh, Halicarnassus, there was an inscription uh, to Augustus. They called him the savior of the world. He is the very embodiment of power, political power, might. The whole world bows before him and honors him and obeys him. At the other end of the passage, verse 7, here's the contrast, right? A baby. A baby. A baby doesn't e that doesn't even have a name yet. That has to wait to verse 21 of this chapter before you find out the baby's name. He's simply called Mary's firstborn. Mary's firstborn. So last week we saw Elizabeth's son, John. 
This week, we see Mary's son, her firstborn son. His name's Jesus. Remember when the angel Gabriel came and told Mary that she was highly favored? The angel identified that the child that she was carrying would be great, that he was son of the Most High, that the Lord would give him the throne of his father David and he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. I mean, you get that kind of background, your expectations go up, right? You're just kind of, ooh, this is going to be great. This king is going to be mighty and powerful. Mary's son, his kingdom is going to far exceed the kingdom of Caesar Augustus. In Mary's song, that Magnificat, verses 46 to 56 in chapter 1, we just sang a song based upon portions of that. At her, her song even raises our expectations higher about what to expect with this baby. That it will usher in an age when the proud will be humbled and the humble, those of humble estate, they're going to be exalted. That the hungry will be filled with good things. The rich, they're going to be sent away empty. The ancient promises to Father Abraham, these promises that were given a millennia ago, they're going to be fulfilled in the Messiah's kingdom that comes with the dawning, the birth of this baby. You're expecting, boy, your expectations are going through the roof at this point. So now at last, here's the moment, the, here's the moment of his arrival in human history. So you've got all this urgency, all this expectation, you're looking, what's the sign of his dignity? What's the sign of his, his uh, uh, royal majesty? Is, is, when he comes on the scene, will you see his true purpose, his destiny? What do you find when he shows up? You find a peasant family with an unnamed child in a makeshift crib. That's a contrast, isn't it? Caesar Augustus to Mary's firstborn son? And it forces us to ask, uh, and this is a dilemma that uh, the Christmas story demands that we face. It's really a dilemma that the gospel of Jesus Christ demands us to ask, what kind of king do you want? What kind of kingdom will you live in? There is the world's model, right? That world's model is, is embodied and uh, is set forward in Caesar Augustus. His power, wealth, riches, fame. He is the pinnacle of human success. The pinnacle of what the world offers. Everything that you might aspire to in terms of the world's benefits. Outward glory. It's all there. And then there's the kingdom of God that comes into the world without displays of glory and its expression is a baby born in humble surroundings. A baby who's born is one of us. So if those are the two models, 
two kingdoms, two kings, two, two realms, two ways of living. You might ask, why in the world would I pick the baby? <laughs> I mean, if I've got fame, wealth, power, money, all that, why in the world would I pick this unnamed baby? Why in the world would I choose that? Why would I live in that kingdom? Some of you aren't nearly that audacious. Some of you say, I know the Sunday school class, all the answers are Jesus or the Bible, so I know I should say Jesus, but if I'm really honest, I really do like the world's power. I really do like wealth and money. I really do like status. Well, Luke helps us understand what kind of king Jesus is. What kind of king will we bow to? It, it's even more than that. We actually aspire to be Caesar Augustus. But the Christian gospel says that instead of seeking to be king, instead of seeking to be worshipped, to have people serve our purposes, For us to be mighty, the Christian gospel says, no, no, you come, bend your knee, and worship, endure, adore a different kind of king altogether. God's king. So, four Ps. Very, uh, some alliteration this morning. And it's not because I was singing partridge in a pear tree. That's not how I came up with the four Ps. But the four Ps. Power. Uh, power, remember power. Promise, remember promise. Person, remember person. And purpose, all right? Power, promise, person, purpose. Let's walk through the text and look at those four Ps. Look at the power of the king here. So, in Luke chapter 1, you can flip over with me, one page here, maybe two pages. When Luke starts off in verses 1 through 3, he is concerned, right? He wants to give an orderly account based on eyewitness testimony, and he's writing to Theophilus that he may have certainty about the things that he has been taught concerning Jesus of Nazareth. So Luke is writing history, all right? It's history. He's providing history. He's not giving myth. He's not writing fable. You know, Tolkien in the, in the Lord of the Rings, in the uh, preface of it, he says, this tale grew with the telling of it. That's not what Luke's doing. He's not giving a tale. He has researched, he's got, gotten eyewitness accounts, he's interviewed people, and he's presenting it. It's not metaphor or, or some philosophical idea or some kind of abstract body of ethics. That's not his purpose of writing. He's given a, a historical account. He wants you to know that if Jesus Christ and the truth about Jesus Christ is not historical fact, it's not worth believing at all. All right? So maybe you're visiting today. Maybe, if, maybe 
you're not busy, you're here regularly, but you haven't been here for a while. Understand clearly that if this isn't historically true, it's not worth believing. It's not, it's not worth it. You're a fool if you believe it, and it's not true. Luke is concerned that Theophilus and us, that we know it's true. These opening verses of chapter 2, the same thing. He's anxious to show. When does this happen? It's when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the whole world should come and be registered. And the whole empire does. They respond to Caesar Augustus's decree. Locally, what happens? Quinarius, the governor of Syria, he obeys the decree of Caesar. This one little family, just like lots of other families, they obey this decree of Julius, uh, uh, of Caesar Augustus. And they make their way to their ancestral home to be registered in the census, all right? So Luke wants you to see, you can plot, you can draw out the birth of Jesus Christ on a historical timeline so if you do the rise and fall of all the different Caesars, here's when it took place. Here's the timeline. Here's when it happened. Notice it's not the second census that Quinarius takes up. It's the first one. All right? Historically, you could go back and say, oh, it wasn't that one. It was this one. All right? These things really happened. He wants to be specific to show that this is real. This is actual history. Jesus, because of whoever he is and whatever significance his coming has, it's the real world. It's real time. His kingship, his power is in a real world. With day-to-day -day problems and issues, day-to-day -day life, the census goes out, Mary and Joseph, in obedience to the law, they make their way to Bethlehem. Notice this, friends. This is, this is amazing. The decree of emperor. That's what stands behind Mary and Joseph going from Nazareth to Bethlehem. What's going on there? Now, do not think for one second that Caesar Augustus is sitting there worried about where the Messiah will actually be born. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about any of the individuals in Palestine or any of those under Quinarius. He doesn't care about any of them. But he, for his purposes, sends out a decree. And it is precisely because of that decree, the decree that Augustus sends out, that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Remember in Matthew chapter 1, when the wise, the, the magi, they go to King Herod. They've been following the star. They go to Herod to find the king, king of the Jews. Remember Herod sends to his scribes, his scholars, and says, oh, they've asked, where's the Messiah going to be born? Where's the king going to be born? You tell me. Where's it going to be? And so they go, they consult the scriptures, they, find, they come back, they quote Micah chapter 5, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you, 
for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see what that means? The mighty emperor Augustus, with all his might, with all of his power, all of his, everything at his disposal, he can order people all over their, the empire and they will obey. And they go back to their homelands. and uh, He sends this peasant family from their home to Bethlehem to fulfill his law. This great king, he is the unwitting servant to the power of a greater king, Almighty God. Augustus' decree serves the purposes of King Jesus. The great power, uh, Augustus' great power is bent to accomplish Christ's coming in the precise way that God had promised that it would happen. His power is bent to serve the very mission of Christ. This tiny peasant baby cradled in Mary's arms that night, the very picture of weakness makes the greatest man in all the world his agent and his instrument. That's amazing. Do you see the power of Christ? King Jesus is the real king. He has the real power, true power. He governs all things. The one who is born in a stable is the Lord of life himself. Even Caesar serves his agenda, accomplishes his purposes. So what's that mean for us? We who live in real world, real time. It means everyone who comes and bows the knee to King Jesus. We have extraordinary hope and comfort. So, 2024, will it be chaotic? Will it be unpredictable? Is it, are you fearful of what might come in 2024? There's lots of reasons to be fearful. We don't know what's going to happen. There could be innumerable, unseen events. But I can be, have comfort and hope. Why? Because I live in the grip and under the reign and rule of King Jesus and King Jesus' kingdom. In that kingdom, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, so I know who he is, that enables me right to face, I can face the future and not be terrified about the future. I can face the future in hope and in faith and in confidence because the power of King Jesus. Second, notice the promise. I've alluded to it already. Micah chapter 5. It promised that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But why Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? Luke says it's the city of David. Says that Mary and Joseph make their way there because they are the house and the lineage of David. So the repetition of David there, that's a clue. Now most of the times in the Bible when you read city of David, it's not talking about Bethlehem. Most of the times it's talking about Jerusalem. 
So first, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 9 says, When David captured Jerusalem uh, from the Jebusites who inhabited the city, we're told that David lived there in the stronghold and called it the city of David. So Jerusalem was his capital, and because that's where he ruled from, it's called the city of David. But Bethlehem is also called the city of David because that's the city where he was born. It's the place of his birth. And so Luke wants us to understand, with the coming of Jesus, it's not just David's heir, but his successor. He is David Prime. Like David, but better than David. He's the greater David. He's great David's greater son. And that's how the prophets spoke about him. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 31. So Ezekiel's writing about 400 years after David died. He says that one day a new David's going to come. And this is what Ezekiel says. I will set up over my people one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them and shall feed them and be their shepherd. Wait a minute. I thought David died 400 years before this. No, there's a new king. New king for Israel. God's promised it. God promised David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom that his heir would sit on his throne forever and ever. And that is what the angel told Mary, right? God shall give him the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. So God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And that's important for us because there are times there could be time, could be right now. Right now might be the time, right? When there is pain and it's hard and it's dark. This season in general for a lot of people is very hard, isn't it? That might be you today. It might be a season of sickness or sorrow or sin. And your confidence in the promises of God are shaken. And maybe you're asking yourself, will he keep his promises to me? Well, in those moments, look to Jesus Christ. And you find God's answer. Will God keep his promises? Yes. Maybe you're asking, God, can I really trust your word? Can I trust you? His answer is yes, of course you can trust me. I have kept my promises in the coming of my son, your savior. He is the promised king. In him, all my promises are yes and amen. I have kept my promises. I have sent my savior for you in Jesus Christ. I always keep my promises. The power, the promises. Now look at the person. Augustus issues the decree. Jesus, with his family, right, presumably, uh, after Jesus is born, they're registered here in Bethlehem. Now think about that for a moment, okay? So what have we been told about this Mary's baby? Jesus is the son of the most high God. He is the son of God. It is Emmanuel, which means 
God amongst us. God is with us. He is God with us right here. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We've been told that before him, all the rulers of the earth are going to bow. That God is going to cause all of his enemies to be a footstool, footstool for his feet. That of his kingdom, there's going to be no end. Uh, uh, the knowledge of the Lord is going to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. And yet, here, for, for, for right now, in this text, he's just another name on a registers list. Just another name on there. And he's probably not even the only Jesus. It's not an unusual name in those days, Joshua or Yeshua. Doubtless there would have been many Jesuses in Bethlehem. So if you are going to do some historical research and you don't have the Ancestry app yet? You go, you do your research, you go to the headquarters where Quinarius is, presides, and you get the registers out, and you scan your finger down all past the I's and past the K's, and you get to the Jesuses. Then you'll find one listing that says Jesus, son of Joseph, born to Mary of Nazareth, of the house and lineage of David, in Bethlehem, while Quinarius is governor. And then you just keep on reading with the next one. This is another name in the list. There's nothing that would mark him out in any unusual way. Because he is born among us as one of us. Fully God, fully man. So, St. Nicholas, right? Think of Council of Nicaea 325. Fully God, fully man. Remember last week we referred to John, his cousin, Elizabeth's son, when he was baptizing people at the Jordan. John's preaching. He's on the banks of the Jordan. He, the, the community is gripped by John's ministry, right? He's, he's preaching and they're convicted. They're, they're convicted of their sin. They know, need, they know that they need to be reconciled to a holy God. And so they're all coming out to be baptized by John. They're all in line. You can picture it even. All lined up on the bank waiting to be baptized by John. Who's standing there? There's a tax collector standing there. There's an adulterer standing there. There's a rabbi standing there. There's a prostitute standing there. There's that one guy. He's known for having fits of rage and anger. There's another guy. He's the most pr proud person I've ever met my whole life. Uh, all of them convicted of their sin and they're longing to be right with God. And they've come out and they've come to be baptized by John. And there's the petty thief. Wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. There's the drunkard. He's, he's standing over there. There's a liar. No one should ever trust that guy. There's Jesus. Oh, there's the, there's the gossip lady that no one, don't let her know anything that's going on in your life because everybody's going to, wait, 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 wait. What's Jesus doing there? What's Jesus doing there? Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. The one who knew no sin. Why is he there with all these guilty people? All these shameful, unclean people. Why is he there? He's there to fulfill all righteousness. Even though he has no sin of his own, he is in solidarity with sinners like you and me. 
He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We fail to obey, he obeys for us. We can't pay our penalty for the transgressions we deserve. He makes a full payment. He is our, our representative. He is fully man to be our representative. He has to be fully man. He is one of us. He's not simply God to govern. He's not simply a king to rule over us. He is the God-man. So that he is God who deserves our absolute, complete uh, 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 devotion and, and he can go to a holy God and, and, and come before a holy God. And he is the only mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. He knows what it is to deal with and to bear our grief, to carry our burden of condemnation. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's one that you can go to, the great high priest that Phil mentions in the call to worship today. He's one that you can really go to and you can entrust your life to because it's been where we are. He's a real person. Once again, this is not myth. This is historical fact. Emmanuel, God, has come near to us. He's with us. And he's taken on flesh and bone. Notice the purpose. This is the last thing we see about King Jesus. We see power, promise, person. Look at his purpose. I wonder, I said, you know, we read this so many times, sometimes we miss the facts. We miss the details of what's actually happening because we're so accustomed. Did you notice the descending order? I wonder if that stood out to anyone as you read it. There's a descending order uh, that Luke lays out. It begins at the very pinnacle of human achievement in Caesar Augustus. Here is Octavian, the greatest man in the world. And then you go down a little bit. Quinarius, the governor of Syria. That's a big step down from, from Caesar, but still an important guy. And then there's Joseph and Mary, his betrothed of the house and the lineage of David. And then all the way down at the bottom, verse 7. This baby, unnamed, doesn't even have a name yet. Notice the descending trajectory that's given. And then to top it off, in at the end of verse 7, we're told he's laid in a manger because there's no place for them at the end. This emphasis is on the humility, the poverty, the weakness, the apparent insignificance of Jesus. Well, what's the message? Here's the Lord of life, the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, made flesh come among us, the great king, and he's lying in a cattle trough. He's lying in a cattle trough. You see the humility of Christ? 
I mean, this is the message, right? It is Philippians 2.6. Although the Lord Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And by that, it doesn't mean he stopped being God. He takes on something that he did not have before. He flesh and blood like us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself all the way down, all the way down. He became obedient, Paul says, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see his purpose? This is the beginning of a ministry. It begins here in this cattle trough. And it proceeds all the way, and then the climax of it is Calvary at the cross, where the Lord Jesus, unlike any other king, any other king, unlike anywhere in the world today, where leaders promote themselves, their self-promotion, self-preservation, self-protection, here's a king who his purpose is to pour himself out in the service of others, ultimately even to die on the cross. He comes to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He tells his disciples, I'm among you as one who serves. He is the Lord's suffering servant, Isaiah says. He's the one in whom God delights. Upon, upon him, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the servant king, right? And his purpose is to lay down his life. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And he laid down his life for his friends on the cross. I wonder this morning, Will you take another look at King Jesus? There's two models here, two kings here. Has the world's model captured your heart? It offers success, it offers glory, material wealth, fame, prominence, social standing. It offers all these things. But there is another way to live. There is another offering that's set before us. There is another king to whom we can bow. And the gospel calls you to bow to him and invites you to bow down to him. A king who can deal with what you really need. Not what the world lies to you and says that you need, but what your heart really does need. A clean conscience. To be reconciled to a holy God. The forgiveness of sins. To be adopted into his family. To have Jesus as your elder brother. You can belong to the people of God. Would you take another look at King Jesus? Would you look at him and come and bow your knee? That is true joy, right? You do know that. True joy is not laughter and celebration and being with loved ones. Those things are nice. It's not true joy. 
True joy comes when you know the redeeming grace of God for you in his son. Look at King Jesus. He's God's gift to you. Now and forever. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we confess. Uh, we confess that the world's model often steals our loyalty, grabs our attention, We confess that we want to be king. We want to be our own God. We want to be our own saviors. We want to be good enough. We want to be mighty and we want to be successful and adored. Yet we've discovered, at least some of us have, Lord, the harder we pursue it, the further from it we become. The more we run after it, the less of it we have, the emptier we are. So, Lord, help us to see the one who empties himself, who humbles himself, who comes as the very picture and epitome of weakness into the manger that night in Bethlehem. Help us to see Jesus as the one who fills our hearts at last. He who is your great gift to sinners like us. Would you bring us to bend our knees to King Jesus? Lord, for those who are hearts are far from you and they're still in their sins, Lord, may today, may they bow their hearts to Christ and say, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sins. And in trusting in Jesus' perfect work on Calvary, may they know what it is to be your true child. And all the benefits of your grace that are given to us in Christ. And Lord, for those of us who are, who are yours but are so often tempted... by this world's kingdom. Lord, we bend our knees. We, we bow our hearts to King Jesus. We worship and adore him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. May our hearts ever sing his praise. May he be the hope, the consolation, the healing of hurting and broken hearts, and our joy forevermore. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.